Good evening, everybody. This is a surprise Super Bowl evening crowd. I didn't know what it was going to be like tonight, so this is this is nice. I, before I pray tonight, I do um, need and want to let everyone know that Don Kenny passed away um, right just early afternoon, probably around it was around about two o'clock or so. Um, so we want to be in prayer for the family and. Uh, for all of them, I, it looks like he did not desire any uh, funeral arrangements or anything like that. So I, I don't know of anything. But if, if anything changes with that, we'll do our best to let everyone know. But let me go ahead and pray for us tonight. And please, this week, would you remember the family? That's uh, that's difficult for all of them. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this time that you've given us tonight. Father, I thank you tonight for your promise that uh, even if we can't remember you, you will not forget us. And so, Lord, we know that uh, because of the promise of your son, Jesus Christ, we can have hope and peace about Don, and we pray for him and his family. We pray, Lord, that you'd watch over them, uh, from the grandchildren up to his wife, Brenda. I just pray that you would take care of them and uh, watch over them in every way in the days to come. Father, I ask that you'd be with us tonight, uh, Lord, as we open your word to close the book of Job. Uh, I pray, Father, that you would enable us to understand what we're meant to understand. I pray, Father, that uh, tonight would be um, hope-giving to us, even as we close down a very difficult book. And I ask this and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a very powerful scene at the end of the movie, The Return of the King. Uh, The end of the Lord of the Rings movie is the third one. After the final battle, everything has been resolved. It's all over, the heroes are all back home, and Samwise Gamgee is his name, the main character Frodo, his very best and loyal friend, uh, is getting married, and Frodo, who carried the one ring, if you know the story at all, carried the one ring, he's looking on in the movie, and he's narrating it, and as everyone is celebrating Sam's wedding, you see Frodo's smile fade into sadness, and you hear him say, how do you pick up the threads of an old life? How do you go on? And in your heart you begin to understand there is no going back. There are some things that time cannot mend. Some hurts that go too deep. They have taken hold. And we might be tempted when we finish Job tonight to conclude that everything was just fine. That since so much is restored to him that there was no more pain. And I don't think that we're meant to take that from the text, even though the end is much happier, obviously, than it could have been. But the book of Job would not achieve its intended purpose, maybe, for suffering people people, if it closed up with a nice tidy and they all lived happily ever after. Uh, that's what happens in fantasies. They all lived happily ever after. That's, that's never true in a fallen world. There is no happily ever after here. We have to be honest. The true resolution for Job and the true resolution tonight and always for you and I will not come in this world. It will not come in this lifetime. It will not come before. It will come after. God did not undo what happened to Job. There was no going back to the way it was before. And I think that's a gift to us, actually. Could you imagine... 
If there was a man in history who lost everything and God miraculously brought everyone back from the dead that he lost, gave him back the exact same things that he had lost, and then everyone lived forever and never got sick and never hurt and never died again, could you imagine how it would feel if Job still was here? If Job still lived among us with his family, not aging, not getting old, never dying, while the same was never true for any of the rest of us. Could you imagine the pain of knowing that somebody that lost all their children got all of them back when nobody else ever does in a world where nothing is forever? New things that will also fade away will not fully heal the pain of prior loss. So as we close out this great book, let's be happy that the end was pleasant for Job, yes, but let us also not cheapen his or anyone else's pain with nice, tight answers in the face of suffering. What we will rejoice in tonight and look to with true hope is what this moment is here to remind us of here at the end, that there is a feast coming and a far green country that will never fade away and our entrance there has been bought and paid for by the suffering of another on our behalf. We are right, beloved, not to be satisfied until we finally sit at the table with Jesus at the head of it forever. Let's go back here briefly to verse 7 in chapter 42 and maybe just recap the climax of Job's suffering after everything that Job went through and we don't really know how long it actually lasted. What would be the first thing you'd want to do if it was all over? The suffering is over. There are no more arguments to deal with. Almighty God has shown up in person to tell the world that you were right and everyone else was wrong? Could you imagine how that would feel? What was Job thinking now when it's all done and he looked at his friends, when he remembered all the things that they had said to him? Remember when they told you that your kids all died because they had obviously done something wrong? Imagine that. Or that, that you had oppressed the poor, that you were a blasphemer and you actually deserved more than the punishment you were getting. So how should all of this end? What should come next? Well, let's look once again at verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Tamanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. God's priority after vindicating Job is to restore and forgive Job's friends. It's the first thing that happens. To restore the friendship that Job once had with these men. The, the mysteries of Job are deep. They're hard to grasp. There's a lot in the Bible like that, isn't there? Maybe one of the hardest things in the Bible to grasp is forgiveness. Forgiveness in English is, uh, it has all kinds of nuances, right? You can forgive alone, or you can you know forgive somebody all these different ways you have to qualify it. But in the Bible, forgiveness is mainly letting go of something. No longer holding something over someone's head, which begs the question in light of suffering. Can the horrors of, say, the Holocaust, can that be forgiven? I mean, really forgiven? 
or the gulags in the Soviet Union, 9-11, the murder of a wife, the betrayal of a spouse or of a friend, being mocked and abused mercilessly and relentlessly in circumstances like Job's or the countless unknown circumstances like that all over the world. Can they be forgiven? I mean, forgiven. And here is where faith is the only way we'll be able to accept what we can understand in Job. Forgiveness begins to come for real only when we all stand at the foot of the cross, look up, and remember Jesus bleeding and dying there and see what it cost for God to forgive us. If that concept hits home, forgiving others might start to come more naturally. But we have to ask, why is it that we don't truly forgive? Now, I, I know in some cases we do. I don't deny that at all. But why is it that grudges over slights, whether they're big or small, become a perfectly justifiable reason in our minds to forever hold somebody at arm's length? It doesn't take much, does it? Can wives forgive husbands for the things they do? Can husbands forgive wives for the things they do? Can the victims of, can the families of victims truly forgive their murderers? I know we've seen that, you know, from time to time, but, and, and <laughs> maybe what we do is we, well, I can forgive, but I, I won't forget. And I, I, I don't say this lightly because there are hurts that cut very deep. So I want to be careful here. I don't want to make it trite. But we, we do need to realize what we're saying when we say that. I can forgive, but I can't forget. Because if we're called to forgive as God has forgiven us, and we are, Ephesians 4.32, forgive as you, as God in Christ has forgiven you. So you, forgiveness for the believer means to forgive other people in the same way that God has forgiven us. If that's the case, then we need to ask ourselves, okay, if that's how I'm supposed to forgive, how has God forgiven me? Has he told me that he no longer holds my sin against me, but we aren't going to be friends? Does he tell me that he won't crush me for my sin anymore, but I'm not welcome in his house? Is that how God forgives? How has God forgiven me? And I'm working towards something. So right now, if you realize in your heart that well, based on that, I don't know that I've truly forgiven. I, I don't, you don't, I don't want you to be condemned, right? That's not the point here. So I'm working towards something. Just stay with me. How has God forgiven me? He's not only let go of my sin. He's not only stopped holding it over my head. He's dressed me in his son's righteousness. He's given me a new name. He calls me beloved. He's made me his very own and has given me a seat at his own table, not as a visitor, but as a child. Do we forgive like this? No. No. And, and I, I, we don't even come close to that if, if we're honest, right? Like, like the per, let's say that you were abused in a horrible way. Are we saying the only way to forgive them is if I have them over for dinner and, and everything's okay? No, beloved. I think, I think that's, the point here first of all is it cheap law not God's word that says you have to forgive but you don't have to forget yes that's cheap law you don't have to you, you have to forgive but you don't have to forget that's not the way you cover the inability to actually forgive the way God has forgiven us that's not the way that's covered is to say well yeah I forgive but I because then what has happened if you can't forget, then what has happened? 
has, has there actually been forgiveness? What is forgiveness? You see, it, everything pushes us toward the gospel. We take commandments as a challenge. They're, they're pushing you toward the gospel because we can't follow them. They're pushing us toward Christ. What would eternity be like if God paid our bill but resented us forever? That would not be very nice. There's nothing like genuine forgiveness in the universe. And genuine forgiveness includes genuine restoration. But do you know what the reality is? Only God can pull that off. Only God can pull that off. You and I will need Jesus right up to our last breath, or we aren't getting in. You see, this is, this is what we mean when we talk about the righteousness of Jesus being imputed to us. Jesus actually forgives. Because what God requires is actual forgiveness that leads to actual restoration. You and I cannot do this. Only Christ can do this. We need Christ doing that to be imputed and credited to our accounts because we're going to struggle with it because our world is broken and because things hurt. It doesn't get us off the hook. It lets us realize how great of a Savior Christ is that He covers even that. Some of the hurts here are just too deep. They're too deep. They're too much. We don't lack the technique. What we need, however, though, is to be honest. We, we don't lack the technique. We don't lack the knowledge. Those are not the reasons we can't forgive. We can't forgive because we cannot fully grasp what we see when we're standing at the foot of the cross. So, and and if, if you can't see the cross, you can't possibly forgive. All the rest of forgiveness would be a sham, right? It's, it's, the cross is where true forgiveness is. God requires perfect forgiveness. So Jesus performed it for us. Or we'd have no hope. We'd have no hope. So we don't, we don't become arrogant and, and, you know, oh great, I don't have to forgive anyone. No. You, you realize that you're required to and you can't. That's different. We go to the foot of the cross and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I, I can't forgive. And maybe at some point God mends that. I, I don't know. But, but what, what I'm saying is we need to be honest here. We need to be honest when we look at this text. Just, the answer is never to make the law cheap enough that we can follow it. All, my point here is, I can forgive, but I can't forget is not, that's fine. I understand that. But what we need, that's not biblical forgiveness. There, there's, there's something wrong there. If you can't fully forgive, it's impossible to forgive the way that we've been called to. So we have to run to Christ. The commands are pushing you to Christ. You don't have life in them. Beloved, you do not have life in commands in the law. No. Right? So, so, we need to let these things drive us to Christ. If, if if God would become a man to die for me, then who can I condemn? Right? What hatred or dreams of violence could I cling to? The point for all of that tonight, the point of bringing all that up tonight, is not really a, like to give you a lesson in forgiveness. The point here is to highlight the tension that comes with the reality of what it means to forgive somebody. Right? It's, it's there's tension. It's not pleasant. It's not comfortable to forgive, especially if you've been wronged severely. Right? That it's it's not easy. It doesn't make everything better. Right? Not in a horizontal way. What does this tension make us do? I mean, we we we, we get this little paragraph here. It's been forty-two chapters. They the friends have been relentless. Right? There's tension here. Wouldn't it have been better if God had just wiped the friends off the planet, like so I don't have to look at them anymore and. Remember what their voices sound like? No, that's not what God does. I don't understand that, right? I mean, that's what I mean. There's, there's tension. Sometimes there's tension. What, I think the tension is, 
for us. What does the tension make us do? Or what is the tension meant to make us do? Not just the fact that we struggle to truly forgive, but that we struggle because sometimes the harm and hurt that have been done to us are just too much. Now what does all that do? It makes us long for heaven. Where all of it will finally be reconciled. Because we can't pull that off here. Sometimes the hurt is just too much. So God help us. For being hurt, help us, Lord God. For not knowing how to forgive, help us, Lord God. It's, it's not a challenge. It's a book about salvation. The first priority for God and for Job is to get his friends reconciled. The first priority is to remind us then that nothing is easy in this world. Nothing. It, God's grace is being vindicated here as Job, the suffering servant, God calls Job his servant four times in verses 7 through 9. The suffering servant becomes what? He becomes the priest. Sacrifice was the only way for reconciliation. You begin to see that, right? What is needed when we've been hurt is sacrifice. Right? I mean, let's be honest. If somebody hurts you, I'm sorry, isn't covering it. Right? It, it, It doesn't cover it. Especially when it's just too much. Only this time, Job is not praying for his children like he did in chapter 1, but for the friends who had betrayed him, denied that they knew the man in front of them, so to speak. So Christ-like. Imagine being one of his friends then, handing over your animals to Job to die in your place. Imagine being Job taking those 14 animals and cutting their throats. That's a lot of blood. And then there's the fire. That's not a small pile. And you all stand there and watch it burn. Right? Just this huge pile of dead animals and blood and fire. And you're all standing there. And that's the point. That's the point. The fires of sacrifice for sins ought to consume us. But they won't because we have a priest. And now the one the friends had condemned as a sinner is the one they are dependent on for restoration. The book ends with overwhelming grace. It's there when the one they rejected became their only hope for salvation. (coughs) Excuse me. The issue is never whether suffering is fair. We're not going to be able to answer that. Right? We just can't. The issue is what God Himself will accomplish, if anything, through suffering. What's it there for? Job's ultimate answer was not an explanation for suffering from God. Job's ultimate answer would be the suffering of God. When God the Son became a man and suffered and died in our place to pay for our sins, we were all standing there watching Him burn, so to speak. Nobody knows the pain more of I'm letting this go. Nobody has borne that burden more than our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about what He has let go and doesn't hold over our heads. That's our hope, beloved. We can't do that. Verses 10 through 17. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when He had prayed for His friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as He had before. Literally, we find. If you match up the beginning and the end of the book. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before. Where where did they come from? And ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him. 
for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Or disaster, which is a not a good rendering here. It's, it's evil. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hoppik. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. Now the text, again, doesn't explain where these relatives and other friends came from. We, we don't know anything. About, but again, where have they been? Where were they when he was suffering? But the time for questions is over in Job. Right, The focus here is on the celebration, the sympathy, the comfort, the gifts that, by the way, provide an opportunity for Job to rebuild his fortune again. But there's two things here, I think, to consider. First of all, let's, let's back up for a second. Hold on a minute here. Do Job's blessings here come as some kind of reward for his repentance? His, his, and remember, we talked about that last week, for his change of disposition towards God. If so, then it proves the view of the friends correct. If you just do good, Job, you'll be blessed. Right? Isn't that what we've been reading the whole time? That's not what happened. Job submitted to God when, in this text, immediately after God had finished speaking in 42.1, without any indication from God that his suffering would end. You notice that. God never said, all right, it's over. None of that. God made zero promises about anything. And Job spoke anyway. Which means Job disproves, disproves Satan's charge that humans won't worship God unless they know they'll be blessed. Job had no idea he was going to be blessed. None. He didn't even know yet that God was going to vindicate him. At 42.1, when he did this, Job had no idea that's what was coming. He didn't do that based on anything. If the automatic connection between deed and consequence has been shattered, that is, if we know now that suffering is not necessarily the consequence of sin, then it's also true that blessing is not necessarily the consequence of obedience. Or Job wouldn't have went through this. There there was no deal or offer from God to get this contrite response from Job. God didn't promise Job anything. God is not the devil. You know, if, if if you'll... I'll give you twice what you had before if you stop all this and worship me, Job. There's none of that in the text. Job saw the Lord and was comforted in the dust and ashes and was content to live out his days there once God had appeared. Job has no idea that a restoration is coming. So his repentance has nothing to do with that. What the restoration shows is the mercy and kindness and love of our God. It was within God's sovereign power to also bless Job, is what's apparent here. To also give and not just to take away. Verse 11. This restoration is a gift of grace. It was not initiated by Job's actions, but by God's mercy, first of all. Secondly, does this restoration mean, then, or though, that everything was fine? That everything's fine? No. First of all, even the restoration has mystery in it. Right, Job was not restored 
to wealth by money and livestock and children falling out of the sky. He was restored through the kindness of friends and family who had previously abandoned him. They're nowhere to be found. So every face is a memory. Every face is a wound now. Many of us might know what that feels like. And where is Job's wife? I'm not saying she's not here, but she's not in the text. Was their relationship too strained? You know, could she not rejoice? Could she not take part in this? Had she passed? We don't, we don't know. <clears throat> I'm not, again, I, I don't know that she's not there, but she's not there in the passage. She's not mentioned. And yes, Job is given children once more. Absolutely. Beautiful daughters, in fact. Jemima means dove. Keziah refers to cinnamon or cassia. Karen Hoppock relates to a bottle that holds black coloring they would use for eyeshadow. So, beautiful daughters. But strangely, the names of the sons are not given, which is very strange. And even more strange is, even more rare, is that the daughters are given an inheritance along with their brothers. Now, think about the implications of that for a minute. If nothing else, you know what that implies? Job missed his former children. He missed them. I want to make sure they're all taken care of when I'm gone, not just my sons. See, so he does something out of the ordinary. And, 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 and I'm, if you spent who knows how long scraping your skin with the shards from broken pots, if your body had been covered in boils and your skin died and you basically had rotted, you figure that leaves any visible scars? Of course it does. And again, I'm not raining on the parade here. That, that, it's not my intent at all. I just don't want us to think that God's point after all this is, it's fine. You get a new family now. Right? Just think, would that take it away? Oh, I, I, my, I have the three most beautiful daughters in the land. I totally forget my other daughters. No, no, not at all. Not at all. My, I, I, I cannot imagine that loss, and then how do you even, I don't understand it. How do you look at your new, I don't know. I, I, I just don't know. What I know is it's not like, oh, everything's fine. No. No, everything is not fine. For all that Job, because for all that Job did receive, do you know what, to our knowledge, and definitely not in the book, Job never received an explanation. He still doesn't have that. Nothing. Job accepted what happened, but not because it was explained to him. That's not why Job found comfort. And let's be honest tonight. In the midst of your deepest suffering and pain, and, and mine, I'm not pointing, I just, I don't know why I was pointing at you right there. In the midst of our deepest suffering, has knowing, and I don't, I don't, my, I'm not being disrespectful here. In, in the midst of that pain, has knowing, God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. Has that ever healed all the pain and sorrow? No. Does it help to know this isn't in a vacuum? Absolutely. And God's Word is sure. And I know there's something we're missing because we we can't see it. I I understand all that. But again, we've talked about this all through this book. That doesn't heal things. And that doesn't make you sub-Christian. You've got to know that. That doesn't make you less than some other kind of Christian. It's just This is just real. This is just real. Sometimes it just it's like, yeah, I, I know, and I'm thankful for that. But Job lived out the rest of his days. He lived 140 more years after this. If that's, that's double. That means he was 70 when all of this happened to him. Apparently, he, he saw four generations of grandkids. 
He is given a measure of peace and joy and healing. And I don't want to take that from the story at all. But he never got an answer, at least not any kind of definitive one. He lived out the rest of his days without ever knowing why or anything about the interactions in chapter 1 of Job between God and the accuser. Job never, to our knowledge, never found anything out about that. And I want to ask you a question. If he had been told that that's why this happened, do you think that would have made his suffering easier or harder to understand? Think about that for a minute. Job, this was actually, um, this was my design. Right? I did this. Figuring God out is not the answer. It's not the answer, beloved. It never will be. It's not the answer for Job. It's not the answer for us. God didn't come to Job at the end of the book and say, You made it. Now let me tell you why you really suffered. Let me clear all this up. Let me magically expunge the pain of your loss. Let me heal your scars. There was still sadness. There would still have been a lack of clarity, as there will always be here. Job is a very powerful book. Job wasn't superhuman. All those scars remained. But... Neither was Job's only hope for restoration, what he could get in this life. How do you end a series on the book of Job? The book of Job is part of what's called the wisdom literature or the writings in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament to us. Wisdom is an extremely significant concept in both the Old and New Testaments. It's at the very heart of of Job in chapter 28, if you remember, what is wisdom? How do you find it? What makes a person wise? And, and the heartbeat of Job's struggle here, which is why this is in the wisdom literature, was uh, he lacked the wisdom necessary to understand. Right? He, he didn't have sufficient wisdom for the answers that he needed. There's no, we, we found out in Job there's no earthly category that automatically equates wisdom. Um, Age, we, we, we know, uh, Job has shown us anything, it's that age certainly doesn't equal wisdom, not automatically. Knowledge doesn't always make for wisdom. The three friends, Elihu, Job, they're all very knowledgeable. I mean, extremely knowledgeable, knowledgeable men, but that doesn't make for wisdom. What makes for wisdom or what wisdom is, is key to the Christian life because it finds its center in the person of Jesus Christ. God made all things relate to each other and to himself. All things, including suffering, in ways that he has determined. That is what makes the universe orderly. That God has, all of it relates to him. We don't make the universe orderly by finding a place for suffering and a place for this and a place for that. That is not what makes the universe orderly. That's not what makes us trust God's hand. And God made all the things that have been made. Why did he do that? This is crucial. Who was everything made for? Somebody say it. Who was everything made for? Did you, Ginger, did you say Jesus? Right, right, yes. Now think about that. That means everything wasn't made for you and I. It was made for Jesus. So Jesus then is the truth that would unify all knowledge. If there's a way to make sense of this world, it's going to have to be in the person for whom this world was made. Because that means everything has its direction towards him. 
He's how anything makes sense. You know, he's, Jesus is, is just how anything makes sense. If all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden exclusively in the person of Jesus Christ, what does that mean for the whole intellectual journey of mankind, period? And if all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden exclusively in the person of Jesus Christ, then at the heart of the book of Job and his search for answers has to also stand the person of Jesus Christ. All of our search for knowledge then, all of it, is either defective or idolatrous or both when it's not pursued in the light of Jesus Christ. Graham Goldsworthy said, the gospel has a controlling interest in all true knowledge. Maturity, wisdom in this world then, is when we're able to look at the whole of reality through Christian eyes. When we interpret things like Job by the wisdom of Christ rather than our own understanding. So what is the the uniquely Christian perspective then on the book of Job? It's not just more theology, although there is that in Job. We've learned theology proper in the book of Job. Absolutely. We've learned certain things. We could have known them before, but we know them because of Job. We know that God is sovereign. He governs the world, all of it, even down to the details, and is Lord over good and evil. And we don't need to try to get him off the hook for it because he isn't trying to get himself off of the hook for it. God does not merely allow. He ordains and is never sinning and never evil. Hard to understand? Yes. Hard to accept? Yes. Hard to see clearly all over the Bible? No. God is, doesn't hide that at all. Like, not at all. And suffering is a part of what this sovereign God has created. Job establishes this even if we're uncomfortable with it. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. He was not sinning when he said that. He was not wrong. We receive both good and evil or disaster, that's how you want to say it, from the Lord. Right? It just, the Bible says, Isaiah says, I, I, I form light and I create darkness. I, and evil. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. It's right there. Does that make God evil? Nope. How? I, I don't know. Right? We just, we, we come up with all these books on how, like, books. I've read them. Books. So like, here's how, yeah, I, by the end of the book, it's like, they're, they're, they're saying, so can we know for sure? No. And it's like, well, then why did you write the book? Right? What, 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 what did I just read? I, Suffering is a part of what the sovereign God has created. Job makes that clear to us. In 42.11, right here, they comforted him concerning all the evil or disaster that the Lord had brought upon him. The Lord. So I thought it was the devil. No, that's not the way it works. Like, is that a typo? It's not a typo. But there is no chaos here. There are no rogue atoms or angels, fallen or unfallen. Satan's rebellion is on God's leash, we find here. Sin and evil, like the ocean, are told this far, no further. God is sovereign. God is creator of all things. God controls, ordains, allows evil to exist in His own creation. Satan is never free to act on his own, but acts at the discretion of Almighty God. All things perform the design God has given to them then, from the birth of calves to the machinations of Satan himself. We will not be saved by working for this God. He can't be bribed or paid off by good behavior. We're in need of a mediator and the gracious mercy of God in order to be saved. And then Job's restoration here shows us that this God is ultimately a life-giving God. He's not some unstable, erratic deity who takes pleasure in the suffering of 
His creation. These are all true, objective points of theology that the book of Job does reveal. But then we also learn practical theology, so to speak, or how what is true about God interacts with our lives. How does it affect us? Why does it matter to us? Job has been confronted with his, and by default, all humanity's inability to govern the world. That's what those questions are saying. You can't run this. God's questions revealed our ignorance of the way the world ultimately even works. We're, that, that, that's why science can, can make us feel so divine. Because you're you're tapping into divine reality. We're not able to comprehend the complexity of God's design. God made Job pull back and consider realities none of us usually consider. I mean, do we have any real grasp of how it is that the world just keeps working? There's, There's mystery concerning the way in which God governs the world, which means suffering in a world where everything is governed by God will always be a mystery from a human standpoint. We now know that God is Lord over suffering and chaos to the degree that it all either comes directly from His hand or at the very least passes through His hand. Just the same thing. But it is and will remain a mystery why suffering is a part of this created order. We might have thought as we set out in Job that eventually we get that answer. We don't. We just realize that it is. And what is being implied not only in what God answers, but how God answers, is that to focus only on God's purposes for human beings is way too narrow of a way to try to understand everything. Right? That will leave us with a distorted view of God's work and will in the world. Everything that exists does not exist for us. I want to circle back to that. The ways of God cannot be fully understood, period. Let alone if we try to make all of his ways about us. It's going to make it harder to understand what's happening. Have you ever ever thought about the universe that way? Oh, that's right. It wasn't made for me. It wasn't made for my glory. It wasn't made for my... uh, That wasn't the point of it. The point of it, it was made for Jesus. It was made for someone else. That begins to alter our approach to it, or it should... The bulk of our confusion comes, I think, from just this default belief we have that this is this, this doesn't work. It's it's supposed to work for me. No, it's supposed to work for Jesus. It has never been the existence or authority or power of God that was the question in the Book of Job. It was whether or not, in spite of all those things, God was actually just not just to ordain or allow suffering, which again is the same thing, but to save by grace and not by works also. That's also a part. Like, how do you, how could you be made right with Him? How does a person have fellowship with Him? And God's response is basically God showing up and saying, look, I'm just because I say I'm just. Right? It's my universe. Like, we just forget this all the time. No, no, no. I, it's mine. I made it. It was my idea. His justice encompasses the power to rule and the authority to control the well-being or the harm of his subjects. Suffering and evil are under the sovereign God's rule. The salvation of people is under the sovereign God's rule. So actually, if we were honest, the issue at hand there in Job is actually much bigger than Job's suffering. That... Part of what God is doing in Job is to push him to say, you know what, now that I think about it, I have a lot of other questions too. 
And that's really part of what Job has been doing. Is, is Really, there's a lot more going on here than the suffering of this one man named Job. There's all kinds of questions that come up now. Why do we exist? What is the point of human life? How does God accept people? And how could these questions even begin to be answered without an objective standard that at least tells us what needs to even be considered before we start asking? We don't even ask the right questions. One of the most difficult things to accept about the implications of Job is that there is a place for suffering in God's perfectly ordered universe. God ordains and allows it to exist. Suffering is part of a design we cannot fully comprehend. It is the will of a God we are unable to exhaustively understand. So what can we take from this book? The Christian perspective that Job pushes us to consider is ultimately the fact that this world that is governed comprehensively yet mysteriously and ultimately by our God with all its good and all its evil, which means there will be good times and there will be suffering, is temporary. This is temporary. Our hope is not that it can be figured out. Our hope tonight, beloved, is that all the pain, all the suffering will not last. Our hope is that a new heavens and a new earth where there is no suffering are coming and they will be forever. Wisdom can only be possessed to the degree that we grasp and accept that. That which Christ has guaranteed to bring about how? Through His suffering. How do we get that forever? The suffering of Jesus. You see how it comes full circle? God doesn't explain it, but He does partake of it. He suffers. He suffers. And the quiet acceptance of Job here is His whisper that that was Job's hope. The end compels us to trust this God we cannot comprehend even though we cannot fully understand His ways. God is beyond us, beloved. He's beyond us in many ways. But it is through the one for whom this world was made that he has fully revealed himself to us. Right? Which, which means we begin to comprehend who God is only when he's our savior. Right? He, he's torturous, the psalmist says, David says, when he's not seen as a savior. He's torturous. There was no celebration until there had been restoration, but once it had come, even in this life, in Job's story, there was a party. And to the degree that this celebration reveals the principle that since it's all over, now we can exhale, it points us to heaven. I think that's what Job is doing. Right? It's not, it's not, it's not like a pessimistic, oh, no, there, there's a, there's a party coming. A better one. It's not just Job that didn't get a definitive answer for why he suffered. We didn't either. But as Job points us to Jesus in his suffering and vindication, Job points us to the fact that the first item on the agenda at the end of our struggle through this life is a party. Right? Revelation 17. Revelation 19, I'm sorry, verses 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Grace, 
you will never escape grace. How did you get these garments? They were given to me. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. A reception is coming, and it's always coming. We look ultimately, beloved, to the future. That's the unique perspective of the Christian in the world. We're we're looking to the future. The gospel and every single solitary thing it promises us will be vindicated when Jesus returns. When, when, When our party comes, how many brothers and sisters will there be that we never knew about? What will be their stories? What will it be like when everyone present in some way walked the same path that Job did, but it's finally all over? Our hope doesn't lie in this temporal life. The the book of Job wasn't written so that we could walk away with insider information on why people suffer. It was written to remind us that our hope doesn't lie on the earth. It lies in the life to come. That's what this celebration is a foreshadow of. And sometimes that is all the consolation there is going to be. That this is not forever. That this too shall pass. But even, look, even in the midst of the suffering, what can the earth really do to us if we're guaranteed heaven? Maybe the only genuine or lasting comfort we can maintain in suffering is that through it, uniquely, we begin to see we're made for another world. We just don't fit here. right? We just don't fit. We're right not to be satisfied until we're feasting with the rest of the saints. And everybody can look down at any moment and see King Jesus seated at the head of the table. That's when it's all over. Not before. Not before. But you you realize that will literally come. Literally. That's what we were made for. We were made for a feast in a garden with our husband. Right? And Job died. That's the last sentence of the book. Because we aren't back in Eden yet. That's how the book of Job ends. Unfinished business, doesn't it? He, he, he died? He's dead? Just, you ever watch a movie and you're like, there's like resolution, but the hero died? It's like, oh. Okay, Saving Private Ryan. I, 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 if it's a spoiler alert, it's, you, you've waited too long. I can't. I'm not bound to spoiler alerts by movies that are older than 15 years old, all right? You can't be mad at me. But like they, they save him. It's a, a beautiful story. But they, except to Private Ryan and one other guy, they all die. And I, look, I, I know, I look, that's the point. I know it's war. Like I, that's what happens. I know that. But it, it stinks. It stinks. The wars, I mean, yeah, and look, I believe in a fallen world like there's no, I, I, there's no way around it. I don't mean I'm like anti. It's just that, yeah, people die. Dads die. Moms die. Spouses die. Kids die. It's just, it, we're not back in Eden yet. We're not at the supper yet. And so, it, it, look, you, you, we can't have this, like this, this nagging, um, expectation of God that everything here in this life works out. It's not going to happen. We get little whispers of it. The whispers are not the substance. That's what makes them shadows. But they are pointing you. When you experience the joy of, of, of restoration, oh, rejoice because 
it tells you that something is coming. Job's dead just like so many other saints. Right? I mean, we had a, we had a saint from our church die a couple hours ago. I didn't even know him. I don't know why I'm choking up. I, I didn't know him. I don't need to act like I knew him. I didn't know him. I mean, I knew him a little bit, went to see him some, but that just happens all the time. You know, we, we've lost several since I've been here. So we look for the resurrection. Again, God is not cheap. God is not saying, look, there's a resurrection. Stop being sad. No. Be sad. You're waiting for something. Right? It's alright to be frustrated with bodies breaking down in the meantime. Don't let people tell you that's okay. We wait for a new heavens and a new earth, beloved, where righteousness dwells and suffering doesn't. That's what Job is pointing us to. So, suffering and death force us to reckon with questions that can only be answered by Jesus through the gospel. And the answer, I think, is, if there is an answer, is that He will end this present way of things, and it will not always be this way because He suffered. Also, as a part of this creation, to free us from it forever. Do you believe this? The Bible doesn't end in Job. The Bible ends in Revelation. Your story doesn't end in Job 42. Your story ends in Revelation. Always. And Revelation means that when all is said and done, there will be a long hugs and tears of joy. You know, there will be no tears in heaven. Well, because God will wipe all of them away. For the Lamb will embrace us and He will smile at us until we realize, no, it, it's, it's over. It's over. You're never going to feel that again. Jesus bought that through His suffering. See, he, doesn't, he doesn't cheapen it. He suffers. How about that? How about Jesus embracing us personally? Like, I just feel like He'll have time for all of us. How about him embracing you till you forget all the stuff you did wrong here too? And you just enjoy the party. So do what James calls us to do in his letter in the New Testament. Remember the patience, the endurance of Job. For in Job's relentless refusal to abandon his faith, he points us to the restoration that is coming for all who believe. Then we will live happily ever after the end I'm going to pray the front will be open if you need to come and pray for anything Father we thank you for your word and the truth that you give us in it because you give us your son and so Father I pray that tonight our hearts would be encouraged it's, it's, we don't do ourselves any favors uh, trying to create an ideal of things that isn't accurate the world is hard. It, is, it doesn't mean every moment is sad or terrible. It just means there are sad and terrible moments. There's plenty of them. And so, Father, I pray that you would be with us as we look to Christ. Keep us looking to Christ. Lord, keep the beloved saints of Moundsville Baptist Church grounded in the rock, Father, I pray. Don't let us waver. Don't let us forget. Don't let us overlook. Save us, O oh God, we pray, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.